So this weekend I had um, the joyful opportunity um, of going grocery shopping with four children. Man, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, for those of you who've shopped with kids, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who haven't shopped with kids, you know, you're the ones that you kind of stare at us, you judge us a little bit, you know, you're, why do you bring your kids here? You know, hey, it's, it's just part of life. You know, you have kids and uh, you know, if you've never grocery shopped with four children, man, it is, it is an experience. So like, you know, here we are, I'm, I'm pushing the grocery cart and you've got one kid, my nine month old daughter, she's in the cart sitting there. And then I've got a three year old that doesn't want to sit in there, even though she probably should, but she wants to mess with her nine month old daughter or she wants to hang from the handle or what she calls ski while she holds a handle and I push the cart and her feet slide along. Daddy, I want to ski, daddy, I want to ski. And then I've got one kid who continually wants to climb underneath the cart where the sodas and stuff are supposed to go. And then the other kid that wants to put everything in the cart that we don't need, but he thinks we need and he's just throwing stuff in there. And, and it's with this kind of craziness going on that you work your way up and down each aisle trying to check off the list of the things that you actually need while keeping your sanity. Then a kid loses their cool, throws a tantrum, everybody stares at you like you're the worst parent on the planet. You're just trying to keep it all together. And then when you finally make it through all of the aisles, all of the things, you get to come to the checkout line. You know, the checkout line, this beautiful four foot wide containment area lined with nothing but the best candy a kid could ever ask for. And as you get there, it never fails. Uh, my daughters are too young to do this yet, but my boys, they know all too well. We get to the line, oh, dad, can I have some M&Ms? Dad, can I have a Snickers? Oh, dad, look what they have. And they're holding up every piece of candy. And I get the joyful experience of going, no, no, you, you can't have that and seeing the look on their face of, what do you mean I can't have it? And it, it, it always blows my mind because as they beg for me to buy this thing that they don't need, this thing that they really, really want, and I say no, and they're disappointed, and then I have to talk to them about it. As all of this is happening, I have my hands on a grocery cart that is literally full of food that is gonna feed them for the next two weeks. It's like you're throwing a fit because you can't have the candy bar, and I'm buying you all this food. I mean, this weekend I was at Aldi, we spent $200 at Aldi. You know how much food you have to buy at Aldi <laughs> to spend $200? Like we had so much food in the cart and yet they're disappointed because they're not buying the candy bar. And here's the, the reality, you know, it's like, I love, I love that my boys feel safe enough to ask me for stuff. Like I love that. You know, they're comfortable asking me because they know I love them, because they know how I'm gonna respond. Even if I say no, they know they're in trouble. Like they are comfortable enough with me as their dad that they will ask for it. And they also are confident in my ability to provide that for them. I love that. I love that my kids are comfortable enough to ask, that they're confident enough to ask me. But here's what drives me crazy. I don't like that, that for some reason, they don't know how in their first response to be grateful for what I'm already buying them. They don't know how to be content with the abundance that's in the cart right in front of them. They, have this, they lack this ability to be content with what's actually being given them because here's what I've learned. Kids are constantly having to be reminded of the difference between their needs and their wants. Everything feels like a need. Dad, I need this, Dad, I need this, Dad, I need this. And even as I, as I think about that, as I see my kids doing that, it's like the Lord puts a mirror in front of me. He's like, Aaron, is it really just your kids that have to be reminded of that? Is it really just your kids that have to be reminded of the difference between their needs and their wants? And I realize that's no, not just my kids. It's me. It's probably all of you. 
right? Like we have this tendency to, to get our needs and our wants kind of jumbled up and we have to be reminded constantly. You know, last week, uh, we jumped into this kind of four-part series. We're walking through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter six. And if you weren't here last week, Dave kind of set this up really beautifully. He said, hey, when, when, Jesus, says, when Jesus says, hey, here's how you should pray, he's not offering a rigid formula, but instead he's given us a relational framework through which we approach our heavenly Father. And so Jesus says, hey, listen, this is how you pray. And what he's holding out, he's saying, it is built around relationship and intimacy. It is built around knowing God as your father. It is built around knowing that your father, your dad, is the king. So if you'll remember, if you weren't here last week, Dave put up this matrix and, and it kind of showed like when we, when we fully relate to God as our father, the king, our dad, the king, then we sit in this place as beloved children and we know how to relate to him. But so often, too many of us have been taught how to relate to him primarily as king, and we begin feeling like we're employees who are just constantly trying to meet up to his standards. Or maybe we've been taught that he is just our father as though we are adult children relating to a guy that we kind of respect, but he doesn't have much authority in our lives, and so we see ourselves as equals. Or maybe we don't acknowledge him as God at all. But the place that Jesus is inviting us into in this prayer is this place of, hey, he's my dad, the king. And we relate to him that way. And what I love is what Jesus is holding out. He's saying, hey, listen, when you understand that God is your dad, the king, then you are comfortable in asking. And you have confidence in his ability to provide, just like my kids with me. But the prayer also, Jesus goes a step further. He doesn't just say, hey, you're comfortable in asking and you have confidence in asking because he's your father, the king. He also is gonna say, listen, I want you to help you understand what it is that you actually need. And the next part of the prayer kind of lays out the needs of humanity. And that's, uh, I want to start by just us reading the prayer together. So we've got some slides that we're going to put up here uh, that have kind of the Lord's Prayer kind of spelled out verse by verse. And um, I'm going to, I'll say it and you guys repeat it to me. And so we'll begin our time together just saying this prayer uh, with one another. And so we get those slides. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. And you guys repeat after me. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. So this is the prayer. This is the prayer Jesus holds out. It says, this is how you should pray. Here's the relational framework for how you interact with your God, your father, the king. And I love the second part of the prayer because what Jesus does, he's already set up the relational framework. Now he's saying, now here's how you ask for what you need. And the first thing we see is that he's, he's telling you, hey, it's good. It is good. It's not only okay, it's good for you to come to your dad, the king, and ask for what you need. But Jesus also is going to go a step further, and by showing us what to ask for, he's kind of laying open the human heart. 
And he's showing, hey, I'm gonna hold out for you your most essential needs. These are the things that you really desperately and truly need to help us distinguish. You know, later in Matthew 6, he'll say, your father knows what you need before you even ask him. He made us, he created us, he knows what we need. And so Jesus lays out these three kind of requests. And they're really simple. The first request, he says, ask for our daily bread. The second request, he says, forgive us our sins. And the third request, deliver us from evil. And what Jesus is saying is saying, hey, not only do you have a heavenly father, but you have a heavenly father who is able and willing to give you what you need materially, your daily bread. He's able and he's willing to give you what you need spiritually, forgiveness. And he's able and he's willing to deliver you from all sorts, any sort of evil that may come against you in your life. And Jesus says, those are the things that you need, that you truly need. You need your daily bread, you need forgiveness, and you need deliverance. Now, this is why this matters to us greatly. This prayer is as relevant today, maybe more relevant today than it ever has been, because we live in a time, in a culture where we are constantly being bombarded with messages that tell us that we need things that we don't. And you can't get away from it. Everywhere you go, you are being communicated that you need something that you don't. Part of it is just, it's the culture that we live in. You know, we live in America in the 21st century. We live in a, a capitalist, consumeristic society. Now, I'm not saying those words to like say that they are automatically bad, that capitalism is bad or consumerism is bad. They are not innately bad. The problem is, is that living in a culture that is primarily capitalist and consumeristic, it shapes us. It shapes us. And it's not that those things are bad, it's that we have to understand how it shapes us as followers of Jesus. You see, it kind of programs us to think that consumption, that buying, that getting, that obtaining, somehow will satiate the deepest longings and desires of our soul. And it's just not true. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, the way this unfolds, the way it is unfolding in our country is that it seems to be getting worse and worse. I'll tell you what I mean. So there was this study that was done in 1970 and then repeated in the year 2000. It's very fascinating what happened in this study. So in, in 1970, what, what was discovered was that the things that people in 2000 considered to be necessities, people in 1970, just 30 years earlier, did not seem to think a necessity. And so things like uh, a second TV, you know, like in 1970, very few people considered a second TV a necessity, whereas in 2000, the numbers were up. The same was true of a second car. Uh, one of the things that was fascinating to me was air conditioning in your car. So in 1970, 11% of Americans considered air conditioning in your car a necessity. 11% means 89% of Americans were like, yeah, you see in my car, I don't really need it. You know, I don't know. It's like, what in the world? In 2000, 65% of Americans considered air conditioning a necessity in your car. Now, what happened? What happened between 1970 and 2000? Some of you are like, global warming, global warming happened. You know, maybe... <laughs> Maybe global warming happened, you know, maybe that's part of it, but something happened in the hearts of our nation. Something happened in our hearts between 1970 and 2000 where something that clearly was seen as a luxury began to be seen as a necessity, this thing that I need. You know, one of the places we see this most at work against us is in social media. And, you know, I don't want to harp on, we talk about social media all the time, right? 
Um, I don't wanna harp on social media, but here's the reality. It is probably the strongest cultural force that any of us are dealing with because it is constantly communicating with us. You know, there was a time where it was only on your desktop. It was only on your computer. And then it, now it's in all of our pockets that everywhere we go, it doesn't matter what platform you're on or how you use it, but you are being bombarded with messages that tell you that you need things you don't need. You think about the, how this works. You think about Instagram, for example. You know, Instagram, it's like, man, you get on there and you start scrolling and already there's an algorithm in place that is designed to keep your brain wanting to keep scrolling and looking at the things that are on there. And as you scroll, what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing all of our best friends' lives or the ideal version of their lives that look so much better than our real lives. It's like, man, their life is so much better than mine. They're so, they're so much better at this or that. Doesn't matter what it is. We compare ourselves with what we see on social media. And as you scroll, you think about when you end up scrolling. It's not when you're having a great time. Like when, when do you end up scrolling on Instagram? It's when you're kind of bored, right? It's when you're sitting in the DMV line or you're stuck in traffic. You're not supposed to touch your phones in traffic. Don't do that. But that's what you do. I know. I'm just going to call it out. Like that's what you do. You know, it's when you're sitting with nothing else to do, I pull this out and I just get sucked in to scrolling. Whether it is the headlines or whether it is my friends' lives, I'm just scrolling and comparing my myself to what I see and what comes next. You're scrolling, feeling discontent with your own life, and then suddenly there's an ad. And man, it doesn't matter what it is. Wow, look at that knife. It like cuts avocados perfectly. If you do that just right, you end up with the perfect avocado slices. Man, I need that avocado knife. If I had that avocado knife, my life would be so good. I'd feel content, I'd feel good. It's like, isn't that the lie that we all buy? We feel discontent. And then there's a message that is intentionally targeted at your discontentment so that you will want to buy it, thinking that if you buy it, you will feel better. And it's in the midst of this culture that we have a really difficult time untangling our needs from our wants, untangling the necessities of what it means to be human from the simple desires of our culture around us. And it is into this that Jesus says, hey, I want to teach you how to pray to your father, the king. You can be comfortable asking. You can have confidence in his ability to provide. And he knows your needs. And so he starts with this first prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. Now, this first request speaks to the material needs, right? Jesus says, give me today our daily bread. Now, here's the thing about this prayer, though, is that for us, for the time that we live in, this idea of daily bread feels so foreign. It feels confusing. You know, the reality, Jesus was te teaching, and that the majority of those that were listening to him teach in Matthew 6, they were daily wage earners which meant they would work all day, and at the end of that day, they would get paid for that day, and that money would go to pay for what they needed for the next day until they went back to work and earned some more. You know, we talk a lot about being people that are living month to month. People in Jesus' day that he was talking to, they were people that really were living day to day. And he was telling them, hey, when you come to your father, ask for your daily bread. In our culture, we take this as a metaphor. We go, oh, daily bread, I only need enough for what's immediately next. You know, and that's the metaphor. But, but here's the problem. In a culture where we don't know how to delineate between our needs and our wants, the metaphor falls apart. Because we hear it like this. Uh, daily bread, what that means is all you need is enough for today and anything beyond that is just a cushion. All you need is enough for today. 
Anything beyond that is good. It's a cushion. It helps you to continue to be content. The problem with that version of this prayer is that we live at a time in a nation where people have more cushion than they've ever had. We have more than we've ever had, and yet we are not any more content. We're still longing, striving after, wanting more. And so if, if daily bread just means, yeah, enough for today and anything beyond that is great, then why in the world in the time when we have more beyond our daily needs are we feeling so much more ill-content? I was talking to Joshua Soloway, our, our campus pastor over at Hillsborough Village, about this text. And he was like, man, contentment. He was just reflecting on this idea of contentment. And we were both going, man, do we know anybody that truly seems to be fully content? And he said this phrase that just grabbed me. He said, he said contentment seems to be like the thing that we're all gold mining for. We're all gold mining for contentment. Chasing down, if you know anything about like the gold rush in the United States back in the 1800s, don't judge me on history, 1700s, whenever it was, 1749, you know, it's like everyone's going west and they're trying to find gold and anywhere there was any prospect of gold, they would pour themselves out completely to get it. And what Joshua was saying is like, man, in our culture, it seems like we are all just pouring ourselves out, chasing after contentment, and yet it seems to be going right through our fingers. We can't seem to tap into it. And I wonder, like, like could, it, could it be, could it be that, that Jesus was not saying, hey, all he needs enough for today and then anything on top of that is good? Could it be that he was communicating as, hey, what you, what you need, what you really need is my people. You need a life where you have enough for today, period. <laughs> and that's where you will thrive the most. A life where you have enough for today. In other words, you don't, you don't need, you don't need the 30-year the, the plan. You don't need the 401k. You don't need the three months of savings. You don't need financial security as our culture would define it. You don't need these things. What you really need is a life where you have enough for today and that is actually where you will thrive the most. Now, I'm not saying that having a retirement plan is evil. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. I'm not saying that having more, having a cushion is bad. I'm not saying that having a little bit beyond just today is bad, but I am inviting you along with me to kind of question like, how does having the cushion really shape our hearts? And how is it affecting our posture towards Jesus? You know, it's okay to have the retirement plan. It's okay to have the cushion. But what is your heart's posture towards whatever the cushion is for you. What is your heart's posture towards it? Because the danger, the danger is thinking that, that our material needs are the source of our contentment. And that as long as we can get more material needs, then we will be content. But this is clearly not what the biblical narrative holds out for us. Jesus says, hey, here's how you pray. God, give me today my daily bread. And I was talking with Joshua again about contentment, and he reminded me of this passage in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul is writing uh, to his good friend and brother Timothy, and listen to what he says. He says, he says, he's talking about people that want financial gain. In verse 6, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Like being godly, being holy, being set apart like your father and being content. Oh, there's so much to gain in that. In verse seven, for we brought nothing into the world and we could take nothing out of it. 
But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money, it's not for money, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Evil. It might be the root of evil too, I don't know. Uh, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You see, what Jesus is holding out to you is going, hey, money, money and things, material needs beyond today, they're not evil. But man, they're also not the source of your contentment. They can never satisfy your soul the way you want them to. And so Jesus says, hey, your father knows you. He knows what you need. He knows what you need. And he delights in giving you what you need, just like I delight in buying a grocery cart full of food to feed my kids what they need. Your father longs to give you what you need. But he says, be careful. Because if you're not careful, then you will try to satiate your desires on material things. As long as you have what you need today. So that's the invitation. He says, pray give us today our daily bread. That's the first kind of need that he holds out to us with this promise that godliness plus contentment leads to great gain. But then, you know, Jesus understands that our material needs are not our only needs. That as human beings, our, our material things are not the only things that we need. The second thing that he prays, he says, and here's, here's what else you pray. He said, Father, forgive us. Forgive us of our sins or our debts or our trespasses. doesn't matter which translation. He's saying, forgive us our wrongdoings, the places where we've fallen short. Father, forgive us. And then he says, as we have forgiven others. You see, this, 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 this portion of our need is an, part of one, of one of the things that our culture doesn't really want to look at. Like, I don't really like to look at it. And it's the reality that I need to be forgiven. I have sin. I have trespasses. I have debts with God Almighty, places where I have fallen short of the glory that he intended for me to have in bearing his image. Romans 3.23 says it very, very clearly. It says, all of humanity has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we have this deep need for forgiveness. Now, most of us would put this as a secondary need to the material needs. In fact, there's a whole field of psychology that kind of says, hey, you can't really deal with spiritual stuff until you deal with the physical stuff, you know, but Jesus clearly didn't brush up on Maslow before he started practicing because in Mark chapter two, Mark chapter two, this paralyzed man, the roof is ripped open by his friends and this paralyzed man who very clearly has very clear physical needs, the dude can't even walk. And as he lands on the ground in front of Jesus, Jesus is so moved by his faith, he has compassion. And what does he do? He looks at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> the audacity of Jesus. A man can't walk and Jesus is gonna talk to him about his sins? But you see, our father knows us. He knows, he knows you. He knows that one of the greatest needs that you have in your life is to have reconciled relationship with him and sin is the thing that prevents that. He says, when you come to your father, say, Father, forgive us our sins. It's a need that every humanity, every human being has. But here's what I love. As Jesus kind of invites us to come to our father and ask for forgiveness, as he stands there, he knows that he himself is about to go to every possible length to make sure that forgiveness is available. He says, hey, come to your father, ask for forgiveness. And you gotta know in the back of his mind, he's going, and he'll give it to you, trust me, I know. Because I'm gonna pay the, the price for it. 
Like Jesus knew, he's like, I'm gonna go to the cross. I'm gonna suffer and agonize because our Father wants you to have forgiveness. And so it's this promise that we can come to our Father and have, be comfortable in asking and being confident in his ability to give us forgiveness. I love Hebrews 10, 14. It's one of my favorite Bible verses. It says, by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy in other words, just in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he answered this prayer proactively for you before you ever drew a breath. He said, forgiveness is yours. Jesus in his sacrifice has made you perfect forever as you were being made holy. And so that begs the question, why in the world, if the forgiveness is already given, why do so many followers of Jesus walk through life racked with guilt, racked with shame, questioning, could God ever really forgive me? Has God forgiven me? You know, Jesus deals with that in this prayer. What does he say? He says, forgive us our debts, what, as we what? Also have forgiven those uh, who have trespassed against us, those who have sinned against us. You see, for Jesus, there's this clear connection between our willingness to forgive somebody else and our ability to receive the freely given forgiveness from our Father. Now, this feels kind of weird to us because we, we feel like we're, now wait a minute, am I earning forgiveness? Does that mean I have to forgive? Or is, is, it, is it earning? Is that the kind of connection? But here's how it works. I don't know if you've ever walked under the weight of unforgiveness. I know I have. Or somebody's wronged me. And man, it feels like it's too hard for me to let, if, if I forgive them, I'm letting them off the hook. If I forgive them, I'm giving them an upper hand on me. If I forgive them, then they'll forget. Man, in marriage, for those of you that are married, it's like with my spouse, I do that. I want to hold stuff over her head because if I forgive her, then somehow she's going to do the same thing over again and then she'll have the, you know, it's like, man. We do that with our friendships. We do that with employers. We do that with our parents. We do that uh, with our spouses. We do that with our kids. And what Jesus says, he says, hey, listen, your father has forgiven you. He's freely giving you forgiveness. And all it requires is your hands to be open. But for so many of us, we are clinging to the things that have been done against us, the wrongs that we've experienced. And our hands are so tight around those things that we don't have the ability to open up our hands and receive what he longs to give us so freely. You know, it's interesting, uh, even in, in secular uh, psychology and in counseling, uh, a good counselor can acknowledge almost immediately the attributes of a heart that is racked with unforgiveness. You know, the attributes of a heart of a person who, who has somebody that they need to forgive. What you see at work in their heart is bitterness, an excessive anger, a constant victim mentality, a lack of trust in relationships. These things start coming to the service and a good, a surface and a good counselor goes, man, there's a hurt in there where there hasn't been forgiveness. You know, and 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He says, instead, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. You know, the invitation here, guys, God has forgiven you. I don't, I don't care what it is. I don't care what you did, when you did it, 
If you are in Jesus, God has forgiven you. But in order for us to receive it, we've got to search our hearts and go, is there anyone that I'm not forgiving? Is there any grudge, resentment, bitterness, hurt, wounding, pain that I'm holding on to? Because as long as I'm holding on to it, my father can't give me what he longs to give me. Well, we open our hands. So Jesus says, hey, your father knows your needs. <laughs> Ask him, God, give me today my daily bread. God, forgive me as I forgive those who have sinned against me. And then the last thing he names, another need that most of us don't really love to acknowledge about ourselves. He says, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Deliver us. This idea of deliverance, you know, most of us like the idea, hey God, don't let me fall in temptation. Protect me from temptation. But man, this language of deliver me from evil, we want to say that when we kind of brush by it. Because when you ask God to deliver you, what we're doing is acknowledging that we need to be delivered. <laughs> we're acknowledging that there, is, there are some things or something in my life that I don't have the ability to deliver myself from. And man, that stinks. <laughs> oh, it stinks. God, I, I, don't, God I, I know I need you to deliver me, but God, I don't want, I don't want to have to need your help. God, I know, I know I have this, this addiction, this addiction to relationships, this addiction to a substance, this addiction to pornography, this addiction to attention, whatever it is. God, I know I have this addiction, but man, I just want to be able to do it myself. For some of us, it's not an addiction. For some of us, we're, you know, we need delivered from ourselves and unhealthy ways of thinking that we don't know how to stop. For some of us, we need to be delivered from disbelief because no matter how hard we try, we just can't seem to get ourselves to believe in all the goodness of God. And we need God to deliver us from disbelief. For some of us, we need to be delivered from pride and arrogance because we think we've got it all together and we don't know how to stop acting like we've got it all together when we really don't. For some of us, we need God to deliver us from mental illness like depression and constant anxiety or bipolar disorder or whatever it is. There's this thing in our life and we feel like we have no control over it. And what Jesus says is, hey, when you come to your father, the king, you can be comfortable asking because he loves you. You can be confident in his ability to give because he is the almighty. He sees you, he loves you, he knows you, and he longs to deliver you. Will you humble yourself and ask for it? Will we do it? Will we humble ourselves and say the prayer, say, God, deliver me from evil. I can't do it myself. So what Jesus holds out to his disciples, he says, hey guys, this is how you pray. He said, you've got a dad in heaven who's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. You can be comfortable in asking him for anything. You can be confident in his ability to give it to you. But you need to know that he knows your needs better than you do. And here's what you need. God, give me my daily bread. Give me contentment with the fact that you've provided for me today. God, forgive me my sins and help me to forgive others. And God, deliver me from evil because I'm powerless to do it myself. You see, this is not, this is not a rigid formula of a prayer. It's a relational framework of the way that we relate with all of our being to our Father, the King, and so this morning, you know, we're going to go to communion like we always do. And uh, I want to just give us some space. I have no idea what God's stirring up in you, if he's stirring anything up in you. Um, but I want to give us some space to simply pray this prayer 
with space for the Spirit to move in you the way that He wants to. And so I've got these prayer prompts that we're going to put up on the screen. And in a minute, I'm going to invite you um, into a space of just response, okay? Now, there's several different things you can do in this response. You could sit by yourself, and you could pray through these points on the screen. And maybe one of them will grab you more than another because you know that's the need that God's touching on this morning. And if that's the case, you sit there by yourself as long as you need to. Another option for response is to, is to circle up with some friends and pray through this with them. Some of you know some wants that you've been confusing for needs, and you want God to help you with that. And so you pray through the first prompt with your friends around you. Um, whatever it is, some of you may want to get together and pray. So one response is reflect by yourself. One is to turn those around you. Another response would be to go immediately to the table. Um, we've got the bread and the cup set out all around the room. And remember, this is a reminder. Forgiveness is yours. It's the body and the blood of Jesus. You take it to remember the gift he's given you. And so one response, you could go immediately to the table with your community. You can grab that, pray together as you take communion. Whatever you want to do, it's okay. This is just a time of response. You know, ask the Lord to lead you as you respond to what he's doing. And then Will and the band will come up here in a little bit and continue to lead us in worship. Um, If you're in a place where you just want to receive prayer this morning, you're in a spot and you're like, man, I've tried praying for these things and I, I don't know. It's like we need each other. I'm just going to tell you, like, I need the body of Jesus. I've needed the body of Jesus all week long. It has been a a week for me. And I have had to lean on my brothers and my sisters. And I'm just going to tell you, if you're in that place this morning, this is not a prayer that we pray by ourselves. We'll talk about that more next week. But did you notice that every single part of this is plural? Our Father our daily bread. So if you need prayer, come to the respond banner and uh, we'll have some folks over there to pray for you. So I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna invite you to respond however you need to with the people around you or by yourself. I love you all. I love being, I love being church family with you. Let's pray. God, will you draw us near to you? Our Father, who's all around us in heaven's and the air on our skin, you are near to us. Hallowed be your name. You alone are set apart as holy. You alone are the source of all gladness, all joy, all peace, all love. You are set apart as the source of every good and perfect gift. Lord, would you let your kingdom come? Your will be done. Your kingdom where there is justice, where there is healing, where there is hope, where there is love. Lord, would you let your kingdom come? Lord, would you give us today our daily bread and give us contentment in your presence. Would you forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us towards forgiveness. And Lord, would you lead us not towards temptation, but Lord, instead, would you deliver us from evil this morning as we come to you around the cup, around the bread, to remember the power of our forgiveness at the cross. We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.